1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 12. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for your work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. And now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the, by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much that you want to speak to us by your Holy Spirit through your word. And Father, I pray that we would be open to that work of your spirit, that you would help us today to better identify what it is your Holy Spirit is doing and when it is that we're quenching your spirit. Lord, may your people receive the assurance that this text is meant to give Lord, may you give us faith to believe all that you've promised, to look to you to do all that you want to do. And Father, we pray that we would actually do this today. Lord, we wouldn't just get our head around some concepts, but we would walk in obedience and, and see you move. Please, Father, do for us today what we can't do for ourselves. For we pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says... Amen. So this is, this is a, a section that is, is meant to be very, very practical, where the Apostle Paul wants the believers in Thessalonica to really be thinking about what their local church gathering should look like. They really want this. They really want to know, what does it look like to come together as Jesus followers? Now, remember, this church is, is, a, is a really special church to Paul. He only spent a few weeks, maybe uh, several weeks, we don't know. He only spent a, a short amount of time there, though. And in the short time there, God did some pretty amazing things. Several people came to faith, began to follow Jesus. And as soon as they start following Jesus, they start going through some very, very serious things. Some persecution, some struggles. And so Paul loves this church. He, he's... He's so excited about the fact that they're committed to love each other. He's excited about the fact that they're hungry for God's word. He even said, if you remember earlier, how he, he looked at, or he, he told them, he commended them, that, that when they heard him teach the scriptures, that they received it as it is, God's word. This is a very commendable church. And so this ending bit here is not meant to be uh, a strong correction as much as it's meant to be an exhortation to, hey, Keep going. Understand what God's doing. Let the Spirit do His work in your life. 
And when we pick it up in verse 19, there is this command that connects to the other commands we've seen earlier, where Paul says, do not quench the Spirit. And it's important that we, we understand what he means by this, because Paul wants us to understand, the Spirit of God wants us to understand what his work actually is. That when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're talking about the third person of the Trinity, and He is doing something, and He's calling us to cooperate with what He's doing. And I think before we even get into how we can quench the Spirit, we need to recognize that quenching the Spirit is not stopping His work. It's hindering our experience of it. This is really important to understand. That that when we quench the Spirit, it's not about the Spirit just says, okay, stop, fine, I won't do anything. It's that he has to re-engage, he has to redirect the work he's going to do. Now, what does it mean? How how do we quench the Spirit? He uses this term quench because the Spirit's work is often kind of connected to fire, this idea of something that consumes, that has power, that brings light, that brings heat. And so how, how do we quench that? How do we put that down? So quickly, I want to give you eight things. I'm going to write these down, eight things. The first thing we see in the previous verses, verses 16 and 18, we quench the Spirit when we ignore fellowship with God. We talked about this last week, didn't we? We talked about the, the idea that when we're not rejoicing, we're not seeing things from God's perspective. We're refusing to spend time and say, God, what do you think about this? We talked about praying without ceasing means don't stop praying. And how often are we tempted to say, you know what, prayer's not working, I'm just going to give it a miss. Or I'll get, put up that little popcorn prayer that is just kind of a religious act, but I'm actually not wanting to fellowship with God. Or the idea that there's just this command to, to um, in everything, give thanks. That we don't take the time to thank God for what He's doing, believing He's sovereign, He's in control. That quenches the Spirit. When we don't enter into fellowship with our Creator, which is what Christ died for, what He's providing through His death and resurrection, we're quenching the Spirit. Also, verse 19, right? He says, uh, do not quench the Spirit. He says, uh, uh, where is that? I just lost my there. He says, he says uh, verse 20, sorry, do not despise prophecies. Now, we'll talk about prophecy specific, but we, we do quench the Spirit when we despise God's supernatural manifestations through his people. And we go, oh, I don't really want any of that kind of stuff. It's just a bit weird. It's a bit bizarre. And we just think, I don't like that stuff. That attitude towards what God says in his word he wants to do quenches his spirit. Third thing. When we reduce him, when we reduce the Holy Spirit to a force rather than a person we relate to. This is often what I have, I hear people talking about, specifically it's interesting, a lot of people who who are wanting to be open to manifestation still relate to the Holy Spirit as a force. Put on the switch, turn off the switch. Plug in, unplug. As if he's a force. He's not a force, he's a person who moves powerfully, the third person of the Trinity. And we quench the Spirit when we see him as a force. And I I always feel... I don't really like correcting people all the time. You might think I do, but I don't. And, 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 and sometimes I, I get annoyed when I hear people say, refer to the Holy Spirit as it. Mm. He's not it. He's a he. He's a third person of the Trinity. We're called to relate to him, follow him, listen to him, not quench him, not grieve him, not resist him. 
Fourth thing, when we neglect the gifts that he's given us. The reference there is when Paul tells Timothy just that, don't neglect the gift that was given to you by the elders when they laid hands on you. When we, when we, it's clear that God's given us gifts and God's given all those who are his people, he's given us gifts. When we don't stir up that gift, when we don't seek to utilize that gift to bless God's people, we quench the spirit. Fifth thing, refusing to express heartfelt praise to God. Look at Ephesians 5, 18 and 19. Where Paul says, you know, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to say, making melody in your heart, singing praises to God. If you're the kind of person that goes, ah, why do we, the singing bit, I don't like the singing bit. I don't want to ever get emotional. Really? Because the thing is, we're called to have a heartfelt praise towards God. And when we resist, we resist giving God his praise. Now again, I'm not talking about uh, whether you raise your hands or not, it's a good thing to do, but you don't have to do that. Whether you close your eyes or not, it's a good thing to do, but you don't have to do that. I'm talking about you are praising God from your heart. You're saying, God, you are worthy, and I want to sing of your worth because I know in my heart of hearts that you're good and you do good and you're worthy of my praise. If you resist that or refuse to do that, you're quenching the Spirit. If, sixth thing, if you're disobeying the command to love. Jesus says the new command they give you, that you love one another, right? That's how people are going to know you're my disciples. The Bible talks about in Galatians 6 that the fruit of the Spirit, what, the, what God's Spirit wants to produce, what He wants to produce in us is love. If we don't see the supremacy of love, we're quenching the Spirit. If we're not pursuing love, we're quenching the Spirit. When we devalue the person and work of Jesus, Jesus talked about that the Holy Spirit in verse in John 16, that the Holy Spirit would, would testify of him, would glorify him. One of the things that, that the Holy Spirit does is not say, look at me, I'm doing this great stuff through you. The Holy Spirit always wants to point us to Jesus. This is one of the ways we, we know how to use the gifts God gives us because those gifts are meant to point his people back to Jesus. So the Holy Spirit's always working to glorify Jesus, exalt Jesus, point us back to Jesus, get us to trust Jesus, get us to get our eyes off ourselves and only look to Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit's doing. So when we're devaluing who Jesus is and what he's done, we're quenching the Spirit. Also in John 16, Jesus said the Spirit would come and he would convict the world of sin and in judgment of righteousness. And when we're resisting his conviction in our hearts, we're quenching the Spirit. Now this is serious because this can become a place where we can eventually, I believe, eventually someone can be guilty of what's called blasphemy of the Spirit. Now, that's not something a believer can do, in my opinion. But it is something that an unbeliever can do when God is calling them to believe in Jesus, the Spirit is calling them to believe in Jesus, and they're resisting the Spirit and saying, no, I don't think I can trust Jesus. So this is how we quench the Spirit. Now, you're going, wait a second, John. I thought you said this was going to be encouraging. <laughs> well, it is. It is in this sense. Guys, listen, if you're convicted right now that maybe of the, of the first seven things you've realized, man, I do that all the time. I do many of those things all the time. That's the Spirit convicting you. Guess what you can do right now? Not quench the Spirit. Hallelujah. You can say, Lord, I want to repent right now. 
God, I want to turn back to you right now and I want to say, God, would you forgive me? In fact, let's do this now. Let's, let's take a minute or two to pray and repent. Let's do that right now. God will meet us right now. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, you know the ways that we've grieved your Holy Spirit, that we've quenched the work of your Spirit, and we ask that even right now, you would bring a refreshing as we turn back to you. We confess that the sin of quenching your Spirit is the sin Christ died for. We believe, Lord, there's still forgiveness in Jesus, and we want to start fresh right now with you. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul says, don't quench the Spirit. Why? Because he's doing a supernatural work. We don't want to hinder our experience of his supernatural work. We want to experience all that God wants to bring us. We want to have what God wants for us. We want to grow in what Christ has provided through his death and resurrection. That's the work of the Spirit. It's a supernatural work of changing us. Now, in, in verses 20 and 21, he gets into specifically this issue of prophecy. And of course, we said one of the ways we uh, uh, quench the Spirit is despising his supernatural manifestation. And so I need to take a little bit of time to talk about prophecy because the Bible deals with different kinds of prophets. This is where we get confused about prophecy because there's different kinds of prophets and we need to understand what these are. The first kind of prophets are what I'm going to call authoritative prophets. Authoritative prophets. That would be like Moses or the Old Testament prophets in the Old Testament. Jesus is a prophet. He's also the prophecy. He's also the fulfillment of all prophecy. But he's also was a prophet. He's more than a prophet, but he was a prophet. The apostles and the authors of Scripture, like James, your brother of Jesus, would be considered a prophet in that he gave us his book, James. Jude, the same thing, though they weren't officially apostles in that as a sense of one of the twelve. And so when we, we call them authoritative prophets because they must be obeyed. The things that they've spoken, now that we have written, those things must be obeyed. There's no option for us in that. Now we're afraid of this whole idea of obedience and, and we don't like authority, but that's just partly because we're rebellious. But obedience is a good thing. It's not God who benefits from our obedience, it's us who benefit from our obedience. And so he gives us his commands to say, listen, I want to bless you. He gives us his word so you don't have to guess what he's like. He, speak, he has spoken through these prophets. Let me give you some verses to back this up. Uh, Isaiah the prophet says this in Isaiah 8.20. He says, to the law, that's the first five books of the, the commandment uh, of the, the scripture, and to the testimony, that would be the rest of the Old Testament. He says, to the law and the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it's because there is no lie in them. And he's, he's actually talking against false prophets. You have to go back to what God has actually already said through his prophets. Jesus says, after the resurrected Jesus, in fact, says this to two of his, uh, of his apostles when he's appearing to them on the road to Emmaus. He says, how foolish are you and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And so even though the scriptures, Old Testament scriptures, had predicted that the Messiah would come and suffer, they didn't want to believe that bit. They didn't want to believe the bit about the Messiah coming and kind of taking over the world and the Jews being on top. But also listen to this, Hebrews chapter 1. 
It says, in, in, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days has spoken to us through his son. Do you see the connection there? The spoken word through the prophets, authoritative. Jesus himself and what he says, authoritative. In fact, we see this connection in 2 Peter as well, where Peter writes, I want you to remember what the holy prophets said long ago and what our Lord and Savior commanded through your apostles. Do you see the the parallel. See, one of the confusion, the bit of confusion is, we see what Old Testament prophets are, and we think, okay, New Testament prophets must be the same. No. The, 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 the parallel that the Scripture says is, here's the Old Testament prophets, and they're equal to New Testament apostles. This is what we mean by authoritative prophecy. In fact, Paul says something incredibly Bold in one in Galatians chapter one, he says, "But if we, that is, we are the, the, the other apostles, if we or or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than what we preach to you, let them be under God's curse." As we've already said, so now I say again: If anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you've accepted, let them be under God's curse. Whoa, it's heavy, isn't it? What Paul's saying is, there is an authority, a prophetic authority that we have in God's word. And that, Paul's saying that what is written, that which is spoken by these uh, 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 authoritative prophets is even above them as people. Why is this important? It's important because if we want to be those who are learning how to prophesy, and we're going to talk about what that means in a second. If we're one of those who know how to test prophecy, we have to know what God has already said. If we don't know what God has said authoritatively, we're not going to be able to be open. We're going to always be worried or this is weird, I don't know. Why? Because we're biblically ignorant. We don't know what God has already said. This is one of the things that happened in the Corinthian church. Paul had to write to him in 2 Corinthians about, hey, I'm worried for you because I think you're, you're going to accept another gospel or another Jesus or another spirit. Why? Because they didn't understand the real gospel, the real Jesus, and the real work of the spirit. We have to understand those things so we can be open to see how he works. So authoritative prophets, that's one type of prophet. Another type of prophet the scripture talks about are false prophets. Don't worry, not so many verses with this one, just one. There's lots of verses about false prophets, but we're not going to get into them. Uh, false prophets are those who kind of claim to hear from God, but the message, vision, or dream that they have contradicts Scripture, and they must be rejected. Have to be. Jesus warned us this is what's going to happen. He says, false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. So, so if there's a false prophecy, if someone's saying, hey, I, God gave me this vision or this dream or God wants me to say this to you and it contradicts or undermines what Scripture says, it's false. It's got to be rejected. There's also uh, what we might call cultural prophets. These tend to speak with unusual insight to their environment or culture. Um, and... and Paul uses an example of this in Titus 1.12. He says, One of Crete's own prophets have said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And the Greek says this is not a Christian prophet, but someone who's just one of part of their culture. Now we can use that illustratively. We can recognize that someone who's not a believer has insight to culture, but they're not speaking authoritatively. Do you guys follow what I'm saying here? Now, 
I don't believe that Paul here is speaking in, in verse 20 of authoritative prophets. He's definitely not speaking of false prophets because we're supposed to despise those. And I don't think he's talking about cultural prophets because that wouldn't make any sense. Now, I believe Paul's talking about what I like to call regulated prophets. Regulated prophets are those who receive a specific, often direction-confirming word or dream or vision for a specific people or a group at a specific time. And these kind of prophetic utterances or visions or dreams, they have to be tested, they have to be confirmed, and when they are, they should be, they should be appreciated, and we should pursue these kinds of things in love. So let's talk more about this. We get an example of this in Acts chapter 21, all right? Listen to this, Acts chapter 21. You see Luke's writing of, of him and Paul and his team and their trip, and he says, We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days, though, the Spirit, the, uh, though through, the, through the Spirit they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now you need to know in the context, God had shown Paul that he's going to go to Jerusalem. God had told Paul, you're going to suffer many things for my sake in Jerusalem. But they're, they're, they're sensing this is what's going to happen by God's Spirit, probably through prophetic words, and they're saying, no, don't go. Now it says, after they'd been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, coming over to us. He took Paul's belt, so he took Paul's belt off of him. He tied his own hands and feet with it, and he said, thus, or the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we, read, when, when we heard this, we, that's this Luke, uh, and, uh, and the people there pleaded with Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Now here's what's interesting. Paul still went to Jerusalem. What's interesting about this is it shows us something about the difference between this, what I call, relegated prophecy and what we call um, authoritative prophecy. So, so God had already warned Paul that you're going to go to Jerusalem and it's going to get heavy and you're going to suffer. And so when they're saying to Paul, Paul, man, the Holy Spirit's saying clearly, you're going to go to Jerusalem, you're going to suffer. They're concluding you shouldn't go. But God already told Paul, you should go. So Paul obeyed God. And does that mean their prophecy was false? No. Their prophecy was a confirmation that God was calling him and it was preparing him for what God was going to do. So, so here's the point. When it comes to this kind of prophecy that Paul's saying, don't despise, he's saying sometimes, it doesn't have to be 100% clear what it's about. It's usually clear to the person who it refers to. In fact, this is the thing that's really important in, 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 from my perspective. Here's how we know it's actually prophecy, not just an, an exhortation. It's specificity. How specific is it? These guys were saying, Paul, this is going to happen to you. Don't go. Paul said, man, that's a confirmation. I better get ready. It's going to be bad. But I have to go because God said I have to go. It was specific for Paul so Paul could interpret it for what it meant. So, so the, the reason this is important is because Paul says don't despise this. And it's really important for us to say, okay, God, we don't want to grieve your spirit. How do you want to speak through your people to your people? Now, I have, I have only had uh, two times... Uh, when I, two times when I felt like God specifically was saying, say this word, like it was a prophetic utterance. Now there's been times when I've been preaching and something will come to my mind or a specific thing and I'll say, you know what, I think God wants me to say this, boom. And that tends, that sometimes can be a prophetic utterance. But only two times in my 30 years of being a Christian where I felt like God was saying, say this prophetic utterance. Once I chickened out. 
It was at a leaders conference. I didn't want to make a fool of myself in front of the leaders. God gave me a specific thing to say. I'm like, uh, I, guess, uh, I don't know if that's you, Lord. I'm not going to say it. And about two minutes later, someone said the exact thing that God put on my heart. And I'm like, praise you, God. You know how to speak to your people, even if I'm disobedient. <laughs> the other time was at a men's retreat, one of our men's retreats. And God gave me a specific word. And, 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 and I spoke that word. I said, this is what I think God's saying. There's a couple of you here. This is a scenario. And God's calling you to do X, Y, Z. And I was hoping someone would respond. Nobody responded. So I thought, oh, man, maybe I was wrong. Afterwards, another pastor was with me said, hey, let me encourage you in this. That was for this person, this person. And they're just too afraid to admit it. Because I know the circumstances of their life. And that is specifically what God needed. They needed to hear from God today. Amen. So it was encouraging. Now the reason I'm saying this is because God wants to confirm his authoritative word through this regulated word, through this regulated prophecy. And also God wants to give direction through regulated prophecy. So you may not know this or not, but the reason I'm in Norwich is because of prophecy. So when I, God, I knew God was calling me to leave youth ministry and to get into to probably church planting, I wasn't sure. I knew I wanted to do it in America because I love America. <laughs> I wanted to stay in America. I had no, no, it never entered my mind to go somewhere outside of the States. It just didn't. And what happened was I got invited to come to Norwich, actually, to plant a church for Calvary Chapel. And, and I thought, oh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't really want to leave America. I was really hoping that God would send me to some place near the beach where I could surf. That was what I was asking God to do. There is a beach. <laughs> yeah, there is a beach. It's a beautiful beach. Beautiful beach. So in it, what happened, it, to try to make this short, what happened is, is, is that I was really wrestling with this. I couldn't get England out of my head. In fact, what happened is I got offered a, to take over a small church in another state, in the state of Michigan, all the way there, not near the beach at all, but well, at least not near a warm beach. And, uh, and I, it was actually a perfect place to raise kids, very inexpensive. It was, a, without getting into the details, it was a very rare opportunity in our movement. And I, and I remember going to that place. They paid for me to go and to speak and to see if they, I would be a good candidate. They offered me the job on the spot. And I was like, I wanted to say yes so bad. And I thought, well, I did tell this other guy that I'd visit England. Give me a couple weeks. I really don't want to be in England, but I'll get back to you. He says, no problem, the job's yours when you get back. <laughs> so I came to England on a kind of a vision quest. And I was jet lagged and I was sleeping in a box room. Yep. Six foot box room, I'm six foot two. Sleeping in this box room. <laughs> and the guy I was sleeping with was was a little bit odd. No, he was. I'm not trying to be mean. Sheila probably knows who I'm talking about. <laughs> and uh, he was a little bit odd. And he turned off all his heating at night. It's in early December. I got like four hoodies on. I'm curled up in a little ball in this little teeny bed in this little teeny room. I'm saying, I hate this place. Why are you doing this? And I'm complaining to God. I'm saying, God, I'm not coming here. I'm not coming here. Well, if you ever do that with God, he's like, you, you, are you really going to say no? And so I'm not coming here. And I said, okay, God, fine. You're going to have to be clear. If you want me to come to England, I'm not coming here to plant a church. I'm not ready for this. If you want me to come to England, have another pastor in England call me and ask me to be his assistant. I thought, that's easy because I don't know any other pastors here. <laughs> 
So the next morning, I get a phone call from Rob Dingman, who I, I, I did meet, but I didn't know. He picked me up with a bunch of other people from the airport and was talking to those people, didn't say a word to me at all until we got to the place I was, to, I was going, said goodbye. And he says, how's it going? I'm like, ah, not too good. I'm not called to England. He goes, well, why don't you pray about coming to be my assistant here? <laughs> and you know, I think God has a sense of humor because I thought I heard him laugh. I thought I heard him chuckle at me. But I'll tell you, it was, it was like I couldn't deny that it happened. Other th that's not even the prophetic word. That was just God answering my prayer. So then what happened is I go back to America after this trip, and I can't deny that God's trying to get me to go here, but I just don't want to do it, and nobody knows that but my wife, Sarah. Because the church that I'd served faithfully in for 12 years, whom I loved and who loved me, they did not want me to go. And if I said, well, I don't really want to go, they would say, well, then don't go. So I couldn't say that to them. So Sarah knew, though Sarah has more spiritual insight, so she knew God was calling us to go to England. And I'm resisting, and I'm resisting, and I'm resisting. So finally, I go, I got to go back. And so I went back to England again. And I'm on this trip. God is speaking to me over and over again. He keeps saying, John, do you, do you want me? Do you want me? Because if you come here, you're going to know me the way you say you want to know me. And if you come here, it's going to be hard. It's going to be laborious, but it's going to be fruitful. Do you want me? And so I'm, I'm sensing this from God, and I'm going, okay, God, and I'm wrestling with this. And I get, a, I, I get a, a message from Sarah saying, call me as soon as you can. And so I call her, and she's like, there's the, you know, Nancy Carnes, a good friend of ours from our church, a woman who didn't uh, really prophesy. This wasn't a gift of hers. She says, she says to Sarah, um, I've been having this dream about John three times in a row, the same dream. I, I think I need to tell you. I don't know what it means. She tells Sarah, Sarah says, you've got to tell John yourself. I get on the phone, and here's what the dream was. The dream was, it might not make sense to you, but you're going to be in a place where this. She said, she said, I saw you, and you were in this place of rolling hills, and you're wearing like coveralls, and you had flecks of wheat all over you, and your eyes were as blue as the sky. And I said, John Brown, why are you here? And I squatted on the, on, on the ground, I squatted on the ground, and I said, I wanted to be here. But God said, go here and be fruitful. I thought, I can't, I can't deny that. that. That's, wow, Lord, you, you know my heart. And God was confirming the direction of my heart to say, you need to be here. It happened again when I was in, I, went, I, I didn't come to Norwich. I came to, uh, went to Twickenham, helped them plant that church. And uh, we were having a prayer meeting one night. And, a, and a, a woman who did have a gift of prophecy spoke a prophecy over me there that God was calling me from the background to the foreground and to, to instead of teaching milk, to teach meat. Because I was only doing kids' ministry and student ministry. And she, and she was saying, this is what God's telling you. Are you going to do this? And I really wanted to, to, to leave after that year in, in Twickenham and go back to youth ministry. I did not want to be a lead pastor. I did not want to plant churches. I wanted to go back in youth ministry. In fact, I was asked to be the co-director of Creation Fest. And, and, and I could have been just working with youth. We would have done a youth of discipleship, and I would have been doing a festival. I'm like, that's my element. That's what I wanted to do. By the beach. By the beach. <laughs> could have been surfing. surfing. <laughs> Absolutely. And the Lord made it clear, no. Now, now I'm, I'm sharing this because those words, those prophetic words, may not seem that prophetic to you, but they were confirmed to me that they were for me. It was the specific timing of the word. It was the specificity of the, of the words that were used. 
that confirmed what God was already doing in my heart. We need this. We need these words. Paul says, don't despise these things. Now, the thing is, we have to test these things. And this is where it gets tricky. I'm really going too long. i got to hustle. Because Paul says this in, in, uh, in one, or not Paul, sorry, John the Apostle said this. He said, dear friends, do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. You must test them to see if the Spirit they have, they have comes from God. For there are many false prophets in the world. If someone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth about Jesus, that person is not from God. We, the apostles, belong to God, and those who know God listen to us. If they do not belong to God, they don't listen to us. That is how we know if someone has the spirit of truth or the spirit of deception. So he's saying, look, this is how you deal with false prophecies. But this is also sometimes the way you deal with the, you know, regulated prophecies. Not that we're harsh to people, who bring forth a prophecy, but if someone gets a prophecy wrong, if it doesn't jive with what God's already saying to you, then you say, no, I don't think it's the Lord. Personally, and this is, I'm just giving my opinion here, I'm not trying to say thus says the Lord at all, I'm not trying to set a standard here, but my personal conviction is, if someone comes to me with a, a word from God, and that's not something God's already speaking to me about, I don't think it's from God. They might be, they might be well intended, they might be lovely, but I don't think it's from God. There's been a couple times over the years where, where someone in this church has had prophetic pictures for me, and both those times, spot on. Both those times, God was speaking to me about something, and they came and said, look, I have this picture of, you, of this thing happening, and I, and I was praying, and I felt like God said, this is for you. And I'm like, oh man, that's so for me. But there's been other times when people have come and said, I think the Lord's saying this, and I'm going, um, okay, well, I'll pray about that, but that's never entered into my mind at all. And I've never had a time where God says, you, were, you didn't listen to me, that's why I had to send this person. Never. Because the Holy Spirit is working in me as well as through other people for me. Do you understand? And the same with you guys. Now, moving forward, okay? The issue about these prophecies as well, though, is there's something that we are to not just despise, not just not despise, but we're to pursue. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 14.1, pursue love. This should be our goal. Every time we get together, God, we want to love you more. We want to love each other more. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may what? Prophesy. Now, some of you are here and you come from backgrounds where you're not used to churches doing this kind of stuff. And you're like, this just seems kind of weird to me. And maybe it does seem weird to you, but can you see scripturally this is true and sound? I mean, seriously, is there, am I making any arguments here that, 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 that contradict what scripture seems to be clearly teaching? Some of you have come from backgrounds where you've seen much more expressions And maybe you've been just kind of receive, receive, receive and not testing as much as you should. Maybe you weren't sure how you should test. Now, please don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying you got to get the balance like I have it. That's not what I'm saying. (laughs) I'm saying all of us need to say, Lord, help us to know how to pursue love so we can walk in these things as fruitfully as possible. Help us to pursue love. Now, moving on. 
So this is a supernatural work God wants. I'm only on point one. Sorry, we're going to rush to the second text two points in about 10 minutes. You guys ready? Seatbelts on? Here we go. All right. The Holy Spirit's doing a supernatural work, but the Holy Spirit's also doing a perfecting work, and I hope this encourages you. He's doing a perfecting work. Look at verse 23. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. The God of peace. Do you realize that the work that the Holy Spirit's doing you is motivated by God's peace? What do I mean? Well, you guys know the scripture, right? Romans 5, uh, Romans 5, 1 and 2. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Notice, peace with God. The Bible teaches this, and maybe if you're new to this Jesus stuff, you wouldn't know this, but the Bible teaches that actually before we, we surrender our lives to Jesus, we're God's enemies. Not because God's making us his enemy, but we've made him our enemy. We push him away. We're at enmity, is the way the scripture puts it, with God. But God so loved the world, he sent Jesus, why? To bring conditions of peace. He wants his enemies, not just to be his friends, but actually to be his children. He wants to adopt them into his family. Pretty amazing. And so he does so by sending Jesus to die for our sins, to raise from the dead, so that our sins could be forgiven and we could be part of God's family. We could be adopted children. We could no longer be enemies, but we could have peace with God. God wants you to be at peace with him. You know, maybe the issue with your relationship to the Holy Spirit, experiencing the Spirit's work, maybe why you've never experienced anything is because you're not at peace with God yet. You see, it's not about pursuing an experience. It is about receiving the work that Christ has done on your behalf by willing to turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus. Maybe that's what God's calling you to do. Maybe that's what the Spirit of God is saying, don't resist this. Believe what Jesus has done is enough. Maybe that's what he's calling you to do. Maybe that's why you're not experiencing the work of the Spirit like you think, because that main, first, primary thing, believing that Jesus is who he says he is, that Spirit's work, you're resisting that. But listen, it's not just that. The fact that God has made conditions of peace, that we can be at peace with him, but we can also experience his peace. Listen to this. In, in Philippians chapter 4, Paul writes, Do not be anxious about anything. It's easier said than done, isn't it? <laughs> but here's how we, we get rid of anxiety. Here's how we deal, I should say, with anxiety. But in every situation, he says, By prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See? We have peace with God through simple faith in Jesus. But we experience the peace of God as we pursue God because of Jesus, as we pursue God and say, God, I need to trust you for what you have for my life. I've got to believe that you're bigger than these issues. As we pray without ceasing and everything, give thanks. This is what motivates the Holy Spirit to work in our life. Don't you know the Holy Spirit wants you to have peace with God? He's leading you to put your faith in Jesus. Don't you know that the Holy Spirit wants you to experience the peace of God? He's the one who leads us to pray and tells us to pray and encourages us to give thanks. That's what he wants to do. 
He's motivated by this. That's why Paul says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. Listen, he says, verse 23, sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body, that's just a way to say every part of you, be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this, this is a perfecting work, and I say perfecting because notice where it says uh, completely. That's, that's a word that literally means absolutely perfect. When it says present you blameless, it means present you completely faultless. When he talks about your whole spirit, soul, body, he means your entire being. I want you to think about this for a second because I don't know about you, but the idea of perfection scares me. It scares me. This whole idea of perfection scares me because I know I'm not perfect. And yet, listen to this. Here's what Jesus said at the end, or not the end, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what Jesus says. He says, therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. It's intimidating, isn't it? It's intimidating. It's overwhelming. It's even depressing until we realize it's the Spirit of God who does that perfecting work. And he's promising here, listen, that he's going to do that work and complete that work until the day of Jesus. That's what he says specifically. Listen to this. Philippians 1.6. Paul says, I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Isn't that awesome? It's going to be, this perfecting work that the Spirit is doing is going to be completed. We can trust him. This should motivate us to cooperate with him, to not quench him, quench his work. But how do we know, John? Well, he says right here, look at verse 24. This is how we know. Listen. He says, he who calls you is faithful who also will do it. That's what we call a promise. (laughs) And God who cannot lie never breaks his promises. Don't you, I love this, the way Paul says this too. He who calls you is faithful. He's saying, listen, he's saying our God is objectively faithful. He's not just saying, in my experience, God's been faithful to me. He's, no, he's saying, this is God's character, his unchanging character. God is faithful. And if he says he's going to finish the work, what's going to happen? The work's going to be finished. Amen? Oh, yeah. that, come on. Amen? Amen. That's worthy of our praise and our faith. We should be motivated by this. God, you're doing this. I want to trust the work of your spirit in my life because you are setting me apart. You are perfecting me who is oh so imperfect. You've done that. You've promised that through the work of Jesus. Now, the psalmist says this, trust in the Lord and do good. Listen to this. I love this. This is New American Standard. Or no, it's New King James. Sorry. He says, dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. What sustains us? How faithful we are? Nope. How faithful God is. See, listen, even if you've been guilty of quenching the Spirit, as I have this week, I was telling Ben yesterday when I was doing my prep, man, I'm so convicted. I'm so convicted. I'm I'm so aware of how often I quench the Spirit of God. But man, how quick is God to forgive and restore and refresh for willing to turn and trust that he is as he says he is, faithful. 
Quickly, lastly, last point. The work of the Spirit, supernatural work, perfecting work, and it's a unifying work. We're going to go really, really fast. You guys ready for this? Verse 25 and 26, he says, Brethren, pray for us, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Relational unity is what the Spirit is working us towards. These aren't just kind of platitudes that you throw at the end of a letter. This is not just kind regards. It's bigger than that. This is Paul reminding these people. He's tying in what he's been saying this whole thing. He's saying, listen, the Holy Spirit wants to lead us towards the affectionate support of one another. And I say affectionate support on purpose. The the idea of, of greeting one another with a holy kiss, a lot of people want to dismiss it. Let me be really clear. And I don't mean to be offensive to this, but I, I, I want to be clear. Many British people want to, blow the, want to dismiss this. Because let's be honest, we're a very reserved culture, isn't it? British culture is very reserved. I, when I first came here, I was hugging everybody until I started getting all up when I started coming up. So I've kind of backed up. I'm kind of afraid to hug people sometimes now because I don't know if they are cool with it or not cool with it. Now, I've never tried to kiss anyone because I know that's probably <laughs> gone a bit far. But still, the, the issue is, the, 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 this issue is this. We are family. If we're in Christ, we are family. And I don't know, maybe you come from a family that has, shows no affection whatsoever. Okay, I, I'll give you that. But I know with my family, I slobber all over my kids. <laughs> I, I know in my family, I love to hold hands, cuddle, especially if I haven't seen them for a while. Guys, listen, God's calling us to support each other affectionately. And it's, it's important, too, because it says, pray for us. Paul's saying, listen, we need your prayers. We need to be the kind of people that are actually taking the time to pray for each other. That's why we give you a church directory, that we're praying for each other. I don't know how many families are in the church directory, to be honest. I'm not sure. I've not counted. But let's just round it up to, let's just round it to 100. If there's 100 families... And you prayed for one family a day. You'd pray for someone three times a year. Well, that's not very much. Well, how often do you pray for them now? If we just prayed for each other, start where your name is and, you know, work down and back up. And we'll all be praying for each other. This is part of how we support each other. And let's do that because we're family. Let's let the affections of our heart be knit to each other. The Holy Spirit wants to lead us to that relational unity. But also it's doctrinal unity. Look look at how Paul says this. He uses very strong words in verse 27. He says, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. Now we said earlier, didn't we, that the the, the church in Thessalonica were very receptive to God's word. They wanted to hear God's word spoken through the apostles. But this this is written probably because there's some people who go, yeah, we've heard Paul before. We have our own ideas. And Paul's going, no, here's the authority. Because the way we're going to have doctrinal unity is to stay about Stay connected to, stay under, stay in the Apostles' Doctrine. Again, Ephesians. Oh, I didn't read the first part, did I? Okay, for, for relational unity, listen to this, Ephesians 4, relational unity. With all lowliness and gentleness, with longsuffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Relational unity. Then he continues on this, listen to this, doctrinal unity. He says, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. These are all doctrinal statements if you didn't know. Or, sorry, doctrinal statements if you didn't know. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all, and he himself 
gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. All those, those giftings there, positions, are those that equip through the teaching of the apostles' doctrine. That's what they do. Doctrinal unity comes as the Holy Spirit uses these teaching gifts, these instructional kinds of gifts, are probably a better way to say it, to expose us to who, what God's Word says. That's where unity comes from. That's how the Holy Spirit does this work. Lastly, verse 28, he ends by saying, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Ours is an eternal unity because of grace. Again, Ephesians 4, listen to this. This is going to happen until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man. That perfecting work? To, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, when's this going to happen? If you looked earlier in Ephesians, here's what he says. In the ages to come, that is when Christ comes back and reigns. In the ages to come, God might show the exceeding riches of what? His grace. And His kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So when Paul closes this letter with an exhortation, that the grace be with us, again, it's not a, just a platitude. It is to say, look, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of grace. And he wants to testify and confirm and distribute the grace of God in and through your life. Servants Church, do you want the work of the Spirit in your life? Do you want that? Do you want him to do what only he can do? We ask God to do that. Do you want that? Father, we pray that you would do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Lord, we pray that all the time, but we, uh, Lord, help us to pray in faith. Lord, we want to take you at your word. Lord, we want to walk in your spirit, bear the fruit of your spirit, use the gifts of your spirit. And we want to do that with the aim of your spirit, which is to exalt Jesus. Father, would you do that? Would you show us how that's going to work in our house groups? Would you show us how that works in our day-to-day relationships? Would you help us not to determine beforehand what it's to look like, but submit to you and let you work as you will? Father, glorify yourself by the work of your Spirit, for the glory of your Son. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.